Hey, what's up? This is Jocko Willink. I am the author of Discipline Equals Freedom Field Manual. I've been on Books on Pod with Trey, and we've been going into some details about the operating system that will make you better. Go get some. Hello, readers. Annie Duke is a former professional poker player, corporate speaker, decision-making consultant, and best-selling author. Her new book is How to Decide, Simple Tools for Making Better Choices. Annie, thank you for the time. How are you today? Oh, well, thank you. You brought up so many fascinating points in this book. I guess the place I want to start is one of the earliest points that you make in these pages, and that has to do with explaining how to make decisions. Why do people, even those who make high-quality decisions for a living, have a hard time explaining how they decide? Oh, gosh. Well, because I don't think that we do a very good job of teaching people what a good decision-making decision looks like. And I think part of it is you've been making decisions your whole life in the same way that you've been walking your whole life. And so nobody's explaining you how to walk. And I think in the same way, people aren't really explaining to you how to make decisions or what a good decision process looks like. And so the answers tend to be things that you've come to yourself or what's worked for you in the past. And those are actually pretty poor answers because we know that when it comes to decision-making, certainly there's so many great books out like Thinking Fast and Slow and Predictably Irrational and whatnot that really talk about where decision-making can go wrong. And part of it is because we just don't have a consistent process and we don't really know what a good process would look like in the first place. So what does a high-quality decision-making process look like? Well, that's what I wrote a whole book about, right? <laughs> that's, that's why I wrote this whole book. So basically, I would say that what it comes down to kind of at its core is two components. One is that you need to understand what a decision is, which is basically a prediction of the future. You know, if I order the chicken or the fish and I decide on the chicken, I'm predicting that I'm going to be happier, that my food's going to be tastier, or it's going to be healthier, whatever the things are that I care about in the future, If I choose one job over the other, I'm saying that I think that the future is going to go better for me if I choose the job that I picked. So once we understand that, that kind of gets us to, okay, so what would a good decision process look like? Well, it would be one that would make us better at predicting the future, meaning when you're thinking about that job, to actually think about what are the different ways that I think this could turn out. It could be amazing. It could be mediocre and a place that I stop at for a while and kind of learn some things from. It could be one that I want to quit within six months, whatever. You figure out what are the different ways it might happen. And those would be called the possibilities. What are the possibilities? And then think about how much you like or dislike any of those possibilities. Because you'll have different preferences for those. Some of them are going to advance you towards your goal a lot more. And some of them are going to cause you to retreat away from your goals. Like if you end up quitting the job very quickly, that's obviously a loss, a retreat. And then what you want to do for any of those is think about what are the probabilities of any of those occurring. And that's going to essentially give you something close to what you would see if you looked in a crystal ball, which would show you the different ways your future could happen and how likely those are to occur. And if you can come up with a process that's going to allow you to do that in a consistent way, your decision making will be better. Say that's a pretty good two-minute summary of the book right there, Annie. And this book does a really good job of challenging certain beliefs that I have about things, including experience and luck. Let's start with luck. It's obviously something that you don't want to dwell too much on, good or bad, but what exactly is luck? So luck is basically a force that acts upon you, meaning it's anything that's outside of your control. So it's luck in the sense of like a random force, Like if I'm playing poker, for example, I have no control over what the cards are that are going to come. If you're going through a traffic light, 
you could get bad luck because there could be, for example, a nail in the road that causes your tire to blow out in the middle of the intersection. Obviously, that's luck. There's nothing that you could do about it or have any control over. The other thing that I generally put into the category of luck is the actions of other people that you don't have any control over. So, you know, if I'm going through an intersection and somebody else blows through the red light in the opposite direction and they end up hitting me and I get in an accident, that would be luck because I don't have control over that person's actions. And the thing that's, I think, really important to think about with luck, because it does have such a big contribution on the way your life turns out. I mean, it's a matter of luck where you were born or when you were born or how tall you are or what your talents are, what country you were born in, all that stuff. It's a huge influence. We do hear this saying that people have, which is you make your own luck. And I think that that's a saying that should really go away in the English language, because by definition, you can't make your own luck. It's something that you have no control over. But what you can do is learn how to make great decisions, because if you make great decisions, you're going to change what the influence of luck on your life is. In other words, I could choose a decision where I'm going to get bad luck 40% of the time, or I'm going to get bad luck 10% of the time. And obviously, I would prefer to make the decision where I'm going to get bad luck 10% of the time. So that's not making my own luck. That's learning how to be a better decision maker and actually thinking about how likely are these bad things going to occur so that I could make my choices accordingly. And it's also important not to dwell too much on the good or bad luck too, correct? Yeah, it's actually really important not to dwell too much on it because it is something that you don't have any control over. And the other thing is that it stops you from examining the thing that really matters, which is what were the quality of my decisions? If you're dwelling on the bad luck, like in poker, if I'm just dwelling on the bad luck that I had because someone hit a lucky card against me, I'm not learning from the hand. I'm not learning how to become a better poker player or a better decision maker because that's just something it's like, okay, I'm sad. That's basically the conclusion from it. What I would rather do is spend my time thinking about, is there a way that I could have played the hand better? Is there a way that if I had made different decisions, maybe that bad luck wouldn't have been a possibility. Maybe it wouldn't have been something that could have happened to me, you know, when we think about those possibilities. And I think that we spend too much time thinking about the luck. We spend too much time thinking about the bad stuff that has happened to us and kind of blaming that for the way that things have turned out. And while that certainly has like a huge impact on your life, it's more productive to think about the ways that you can change your decisions and how maybe you could have made better decisions in the past and how you can make better decisions in the future, because that's the thing that's actually going to change your life. Experience is generally looked at as a good thing when making decisions. When done right, we learn lessons from those experiences. But how can experience actually become a little bit more paradoxical, and how do we resolve this? This is one of the big paradoxes of decision-making, and I actually talk about the paradox of experience, which is that any experience that we have can actually make it harder to learn. Like if I'm flipping a coin, if I see the coin flip a thousand times, I know a lot about how often it's going to land heads or tails. But if I see it flip only once, it doesn't really help me. And there's all sorts of ways in which we do this thing called resulting, where we see how it turned out, like did it win or lose? And then we decide that that tells us everything we need to know about the quality of vision that led up to it. In chess, you can see how that's a fine thing. If I win a game of chess, you don't need to see the game that I played to know that I made better decisions than my opponent. But once you start to add luck into the equation, and once you start to add hidden information into the equation, that becomes a real problem. So if I lose a hand of poker, 
you actually don't know whether I played well or not. I could have lost for reasons that don't have to do with my skill. There's some really great examples of how we do this all the time in our life where we sort of look and we say, if it turned out well, it must have been a good decision. If it turned out poorly, it must have been a bad one. A very famous example is actually, if you remember Pete Carroll in 2015, <laughs> the Seahawks were playing the Patriots. They were on the one-yard line, 26 seconds left in the whole game, and they were down by four. They just needed to score a touchdown, and they had three downs that they could try for the end zone. And Pete Carroll really famously called a pass play there when everybody expected him to hand the ball to Marshawn Lynch and run. Obviously, we all remember that ended up in an interception. And to this day, people are saying that was the worst decision in Super Bowl history. What an idiot. (laughs) But you can do the thought experiment really quickly, and you can say, well, what if that had been caught for the game-winning touchdown and he had defeated the Patriots and robbed them of their fifth Super Bowl? Of course, people would be saying that's the best decision in Super Bowl history. But the one time you pass the ball, if it gets intercepted or not, there's just kind of a lot of luck involved there. And when you actually do the math on the decision, I won't go into it, trust me, but you can go look at 538 to find this. The math on it was actually really good. And whether it's that or Hillary Clinton lost Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan, so she must have made a terrible mistake in those states. That despite the fact that the polls had an error in them and nobody was pointing out that there was an error beforehand. So is it really the worst mistake? I don't know, because she was going off of the same polls that everybody saw and nobody else saw the mistake. Whether it's you go to a job and it turns out to be horrible and you say that was such a mistake to take that job. Or you order something in a restaurant, the dish stinks, and you say what a mistake to order that thing in a restaurant. And that's why it's really hard to learn from experience because we think that the one time that the chicken is bad or that the job doesn't work out or that the play in football doesn't work, that the decision must have been really bad and then we learn the wrong lessons from it. You lay out six steps to better decision-making, including estimating the probabilities of good and bad outcomes, but estimating probabilities doesn't come naturally to most. Why does the archer's mindset provide a good template for estimating probabilities of outcomes for decisions? Yeah, so a lot of people, when you ask them to estimate probabilities, they'll give you an answer which is technically correct, which is, I don't know. And... That's true. We don't know exactly how often things are to occur. If I ask you to predict the weather, obviously we have weather apps now, but you know we know that there's some variation in that and some of those are sort of guesses. And so what people will do is they say, well, I can't really know what the actual probability is. So therefore, I'm not going to try. I'm not even going to take a guess. But what you want to do is apply the archer's mindset to say, is, yes, it's true. You might not know what the exact answer is. In the same way that an archer while they're aiming at the bullseye, will not hit it every single time. But what you can do is like the archer, by aiming at the bullseye, you're going to hit the target more often. In other words, you're going to get something that's kind of closer to the answer that you think. So if I say to you, hey, you're thinking about taking a particular job, what do you think the probability is that you're going to want to quit in six months? You could say, well, how could I possibly know? And that would sort of technically be correct, but it's better if you take aim and try to guess. And maybe you'll say, I don't know, you know, probably somewhere between 15 and 25% of the time. And notice that by doing that, have you given me an exact answer? No, but you've had to think about what are the things that I know? What do I know about the job? What do I know about myself? How have jobs gone in the past? Maybe you've asked a few people, what do you think about what the likelihood is that I would want to quit this job? 
and you've gathered some information and what you've ended up doing is eliminating a lot of the possibilities. The way I try to think about it is that if I give you a math equation that's pretty hard, like what's 237 times 526, you could say to me, I don't know, that's too hard. I don't want to guess at that. I don't have my calculator in front of me. But if I actually started quizzing you on it and I'd say, well, do you think the answer is two? You would say no. And I would say, well, do you think the answer is less than 500? You'd say, of course not, because you're multiplying 500 and something by 300 and something. I said, do you think the answer is a million? You would say, well, of course not. And it turns out that you actually do know a lot about it and you can narrow it down to a range of like, well, it's probably somewhere between, you know, 1500 and 1800. And it's like, wow, you just eliminated a lot of the ground and that's going to make you a better decision maker. I also enjoyed how you suggested expressing probabilities through language first and percentages second, but people are going to need to buy the book and read the book to find out more about that. You also suggest stepping outside of your own perspective when making a decision to look at things from a disconnected point of view. But once again, that is a tough task. Is there a simple way to make this happen? Yeah, the simplest way. So let me explain what you mean. So we always make decisions from inside of our own perspective. And we look at information in order generally to get to the answers that we want or to confirm the things we already believe. If you don't believe me, you just have to ask what channels the Democrats watch and what channels the Republicans watch. Obviously, they're trying to live in their own perspective, their own little information bubble. And everybody's doing it. So we want to step outside ourselves to do that. The simplest way to do that is when you're asking somebody's opinion, don't tell them what you think first. And this is true of everything, right? So if I ask you who you're voting for in the election and why, and I tell you who I'm voting for first, you're going to give me a really different answer. Because particularly if you're my friend, the conversation that we're going to have is now going to be very different. And I'm not going to find out what you actually think about the election. And I'm not going to find out something more true to why you might be voting for the person that you're voting for that might end up helping me to understand my own vote. But if I withhold that opinion from you and I just say, hey, what do you think about the election? Who are you voting for? I'm going to get a much better idea of what you think. And that's true no matter what you're asking about. If I want to understand what you think about whether I should take a job, I should describe the job to you and what my other options are and just ask your opinion. I shouldn't tell you this is the job I prefer. I like it over this one because of all of these reasons. Because if I do that, you're probably just going to agree with me. So the more that you can, when you're asking for people's advice, you can just not tell them what the things are that you think, the more likely you're going to get their perspective. And that's the easiest hack to getting outside of your own perspective is to get into other people's perspectives. What did you mean when you wrote, when a decision is hard, that means it's easy? Oh, gosh, this is one of my favorite concepts in the book. So I think that everybody really suffers from analysis paralysis. And I think that that's particularly true these days because there's so much information available. If you're trying to decide between two things, like before coronavirus, if you're thinking about a fantastic European vacation or you're imagining one that you might have in the future when the pandemic goes away and you get it narrowed down to Paris or Rome, you'll spend just these endless loops of trying to analyze, trying to figure out which is better, Paris or Rome? And I don't know. And you're looking at TripAdvisor and you're asking all your friends and you're just taking so much time with it. But the reason why you're taking so much time with that decision is because the options are so close to each other. What you've discovered is as you kind of think about what are the possible futures that might happen if I go to Paris, 
or if I go to Rome, that those look pretty similar. If you were to look into your crystal ball about how likely it is that you would like either, they're about the same. And the way you can figure that out is by applying the only options test. If Paris were the only European city that I could go visit, would I be super happy with that? And of course, the answer is yes. And you could apply the only option test to Rome. If Rome were the only city that would be that I could go to, would I be really happy? And the answer is yes. And what that tells you is that what's making that decision feel so hard is that you can't actually tell the difference between the two. And because they've passed the only option test, that tells you that the decision is now quite easy because you can flip a coin between the two. You're going to be happy either way. So when you start getting caught up, unable to decide between two options, apply the only option test. And that's going to reveal to you that the decision is actually pretty easy because it becomes a coin flip. I'm with you. That's one of my favorite concepts in this book. Another is quittuitiveness. What is quittuitiveness? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. You're hitting all my highlights. I love it. Thank you. So quittuitiveness is basically the idea that, again, when we're in this analysis paralysis, one of the reasons why we get into the paralysis is that we don't want to have any chance that the decision work out poorly. Because when you order your dish in the restaurant and then the chicken is dry, you're like, oh, I made a mistake, right? We know that from before with resulting. And so you're trying to sort of defend against that, getting to a point where you're so certain that it will work out that you're never going to have to feel that regret of it having not actually turned out right. But quittuitiveness actually helps you to get over that, which is to realize that most of the things that you're choosing, you can actually quit. When you're thinking about what thing to watch on Netflix and you're doing that endless researching and scrolling through everything, part of the reason why is you think about it as I'm committing to a whole series. But if you instead say, wait a minute, if I don't like it after 15 minutes, I can turn this show off. Then it becomes a lot easier once you realize that you can quit it. Dating is something that who to go on a date with. Don't spend a lot of time choosing that because dates are really easy to quit. I can just get someone to call me up on the phone and like pretend there's an emergency and then I'm out of the date. (laughs) But marrying, that's something that's harder to quit. So I should be taking more time with that type of decision. And even decisions that we don't think of is very quittable because obviously things like what to watch on Netflix, it's really quittable. Going on a date, really quittable. Renting, much more quittable than buying a house, for example. But even something like what college to choose is a much more quittable decision than you actually think it is once you start thinking about quittuitiveness, because 37% of people who go to college transfer in the first year. And so you can transfer out of a college if you don't like it. There are costs to quitting that have to do with having to make new friends or do your credits transfer and that kind of thing. And you should certainly take that into account. But one of the things you always want to ask yourself when you enter into a decision is, is this a pretty quittable thing? And if the answer is yes, I can quit this at a cost that's okay for me, don't take so much time and get out of that analysis paralysis. Annie Duke is a former professional poker player, corporate speaker, decision-making consultant, and best-selling author. Her new book is How to Decide, Simple Tools for Making Better Choices. Annie, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for this great book. Thank you so much. And thanks to you for listening today. A reminder that you can hear all of our episodes at booksonpod.com or by searching Books on Pod with Trey Elling wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're on Apple Podcasts, I would greatly appreciate a five-star rating and review. Helps us grow the show. We'll talk to you next time on Books on Pod. Books on Pod.